glad that you're listening to this podcast. This podcast is a ministry of the Bonners Ferry Baptist Church and of Pastor Devin Neal. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Let's just go ahead and back. We've been reading these through, so beginning verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called the children of God. And I don't want you to be confused. God is not saying you become a child of God by being a peacemaker. That's not what he's saying. Meaning your relationship to God as Him being your heavenly Father will be revealed by being a peacemaker. Now, what does it mean to be a peacemaker? What we want to do, I believe it's easy to read terms in the Bible and immediately... You try to come up, what we do is we try to come up with a definition, right? You read a term. If you want to learn, you do. You try to come up with a definition. And this is one of those definitions, like pretty much all in the Bible, where the world gets a hold of it, perverts it, redefines it, and what we would be told. I preached a message here some months ago on being a peacemaker out of, I think it was primarily out of the book of Romans, chapter 14, that we, as much as life in us, are to dwell peaceably with all men. And that's the truth. We are not to be contentious people. Only by pride cometh contention, but with a well-advised wisdom. But I do believe we get a false view of peacemaking, that peace is made through compromise. How many of us know that's the world's vision and view of peacemaking? You make peace by compromising truth. You don't make peace by being like Shema this morning in Sunday school and standing your ground. You make peace, and what they would mean by the word being a peacemaker can mean to be conciliatory. Let me give you an example, though, this morning, all right? Let's say I'm at my home, and someone knocks on my door, and I recognize the guy that knocks on my door, and I think, boy, that's a, that's a troublesome fella. I know him. And the guy says, hey, I got a little trouble here this morning. I uh, need, need some gas for my car. And I consider and think, I ain't giving gas to you. Or I can think, just gasoline, you have all you want. You want some gas? Sure. And he says, we have some gas for my car? Sure, I'll, I'll, I'll give you what I got. You need the can, you want to take it to town, knowing he may not even bring it back. I believe that's being conciliatory, being a peacemaker. He may not deserve that, but I'm being gracious, right? But then he says, you know, that's not enough. I want gas for my car, but I want you to bring your children out here and put them in my car. Well, I'm supposed to be a peacemaker, right? Oh, well, hold on. I'll get them for you. No, hey, wait, wait, wait. We just crossed a different line. Now you're intruding into my territory, and you turned into somebody wanting something that I can live without to now telling me to forego my God-given responsibilities so that you can be a thief. Now, we have, we have a different thing going on here. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's one thing to give up something. We can give up our personal rights all day. I can surrender anything that I want, but I can't surrender your safety. I can't surrender your life. And so the, the world today says the way you're a peacemaker is you yield ground of truth for our lives. And may I say, I believe this, Joseph's brethren, we're going to look at them in just a little bit, they made peace for 22 years by lying. 
It really didn't make peace, but that's how they made it, by being compromisers. We're going to do something wrong, pretend we never did it, so that we don't have more strife in our home than we had before, because we don't want to get in trouble with Dad. But it didn't make peace. We're going to find out this morning, this is a home in conflict as we come into Genesis 42. It's a home that's got a lot of trouble in it. And Joseph is the one person in the family that ends up being the peacemaker. By the time Joseph is done with his brethren, they are reconciled to him. They are reconciled to their dad. And by what I can tell in Scripture, they're reconciled to God. Joseph realized peace is not made through compromise. Peace is made through reconciliation. It's a term we hardly ever even hear anymore. So reconciliation has to do with when I have done something evil to you, you are conscious of the evil I've done. I'm conscious of the evil I've done. The, one, the world says you make peace by pretending no one was ever hurt. So we'll just we'll, we'll use an illustration before we get into over into our story. Let's say there's a married couple. There's a husband and a wife. And uh, there's a point in time he gets frustrated with her and uh, she's she's griping at him, he says, and he's not doing the things that she needs done, she says. And all of a sudden he meets a lady at work or, my goodness, maybe even at church. And she's sweet to him and she's nice to him and she does things for him, bakes him cookies. She treats him better than his wife ever thought about doing. Next thing you know, he has an affair on his wife. I'm sad to say this happens. Does it not? And all of a sudden, the wife, he does, he goes, instead of going home, he says, honey, I have sinned against you. I made a vow to be true to you only, and I have sinned against you, and all I can do is beg you to forgive me. What is typically, that's not typically what happens, right? Typically what happens is he deletes cell phone records, and he deletes pictures, and he lies, and he covers the thing over. And I guarantee you, there are men that have done such things Never committed another affair in their life, but for 30 years or 20 years or 15 years swept that thing under the rug. You know what they would say they're doing? I'm making peace. I don't want conflict in my home. I don't want to lose my marriage. I'm just going to make peace and pretend it never happened. Now, how many of us think the wife would have no clue? I mean, come on, really. The wife has no clue. But if she can't prove it, she's got to live with the distrust that causes all those years. And he's going to pretend it didn't happen and cover up and he's going to overcompensate and be sugary sweet because he's trying to get her to think that he didn't do something wrong. And for the next 20 years, it never comes to surface. So peace was made, right? Now, here's what peace is. When the truth comes out and he owns up to what what he did and he says, I hurt you by lying and being unfaithful to you and above that, I was unfaithful to God. And all I can do is beg forgiveness. If you wanted to throw me out with last week's garbage, I would fully understand I was wrong. Someone says, what about the wife? What'd she do wrong? That has nothing to do with it. What he did was wrong. Now, if she did something wrong, she needs to own up. My point is there has to be reconciliation. He has to say, because what I did was wrong to you and hurt you, I'm acknowledging that, I'm asking you to forgive me, and I will do what is necessary, whatever I can, to try to re-earn the trust that I destroyed by my sin and disobedience to God. Is that the way the culture treats peacemaking? No way. No way. So what we want to do is have the light of God's word in, the, in this person, Joseph, to give us a picture of what peacemaking looks like. And I think Joseph here we know is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, you would call him a child of God. He, he demonstrates the characteristics of God the Father, no doubt the God the Son, and, and in his conduct with his brethren. And so go to Genesis 42, if you would now. 
And again, the message is going to be different today. Normally, we'll read a text. We'll stay focused on that specific text. I don't have time this morning to read to you Genesis 37 to Genesis 50. We don't, I mean, we could, but we're not going to do that. I don't think that's what we need to do. So what we are going to do is hit hit some high points here that demonstrate what it looks like to be a peacemaker. I believe there's a number of lessons here today. Starting with, number one, we may be on the receiving end of God working in our life to try to be a peacemaker. God the Father is the only one that can make true peace. Jesus made peace through what? The blood of his cross, Romans 5.1. Meaning he paid a great price so that we can be reconciled to God. How many of you this morning would be honest enough to say, I have done things that are against God, and God knows it. I have personally broken God's laws. I have offended him, and he has reason to be displeased with me based on the actions of my life. Yeah. Some people will never get saved because they won't admit what well, many of you just raise your hands. You know, I, yeah, I've done some things that are wrong, but I don't think God should be displeased with me because I've done a lot of things that are right. Right? That person is not going to have peace with God because they're denying truth. Well, I, yes, I've done some wrong things, but I got baptized when I was like 14. Well, good. That's, I guess. <laughs> but that doesn't wipe out all the sins. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can do that. I might need somebody to, to help Ben back there. I think he's trying to come in. Dawson's got it. Thank you. Um, and so the truth of the matter is, is peacemaking, We again, you see it from the light of God's word. So you may be here today and God may be working to make peace with you and not able, uh, but working. And what can happen is we may not be recognizing. And by the way, God will put a peacemaker in your life. I believe it. You know who a soul winner is? A peacemaker. How, how, are we often seen as such? Not initially, but that's what a soul winner is. We are endeavoring to see someone at peace with God. The principles applied in making peace with God really are the same applied with people making peace with each other. So there's a lot of application to the message today, but our focus is going to be on, of course, Joseph and his interaction with his brothers. So Genesis chapter 42, I do want to read a number of verses. I think once we get into the heart of this, it won't take long to establish the message that is here. Genesis chapter 42, verse 1, we'll read down through verse 24. Now when Jacob saw that there was corn in Egypt, Jacob said unto his sons, Why do ye look one upon another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is corn in Egypt. Get you down thither and buy for us from thence that we may live and not die. And Joseph's ten brethren went down to buy corn in Egypt. But Benjamin, Joseph's brother, Jacob sent not with his brethren, for he said, Lest peradventure mischief befall him. And the sons of Israel came to buy corn among those that came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. And Joseph was the governor of the land, and he it was that sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brethren came and bowed down themselves before him with their faces to the earth. And Joseph saw his brethren, and he knew them, but made himself strange unto them, and spake roughly unto them. Pause just a moment. I thought he was a peacemaker. He spake roughly unto them. And he said unto them, Whence come ye? And they said, From the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph knew his brethren, but they knew not him. And Joseph remembered the dreams which he dreamed of them and said unto them, Ye are spies to see the nakedness of the land, or ye ye are come. And they said unto him, Name the Lord, but to buy food are thy servants come. We are all one man's sons. We, We are true men. Thy servants are no spies. And he said unto them, Nay, but to see the nakedness of the land, ye are come. And they said, Thy servants are twelve brethren, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is not. Joseph said unto them, That is that that I spake unto you, saying, Ye are spies. 
Hereby ye shall be proved by the life of Pharaoh. Ye shall not go forth hence, except your youngest brother come hither. Send one of you and let him fetch your brother, and ye shall be kept in prison, that your words may be proved, whether there be any truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely ye are spies. And he put them all together into ward three days. And Joseph said unto them the third day, This do and live, for I fear God. If ye be true men, let one of your brethren be bound in the house of your prison. Go ye, carry corn for the famine of your houses, but bring your youngest brother unto me. So shall your words be verified, and ye shall not die. And they did so. And they said one to another, We are verily guilty concerning our brother, that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us, and we would not hear. Therefore is this distress come upon us. And Reuben answered them, saying, Spake I not unto you, saying, Do not sin against the child? And ye would not hear. Therefore, behold, also his blood is required. And they knew not that Joseph understood them, for he spake unto them by an interpreter, and he turned himself about from them and wept and returned to them again and communed with them and took from them Simeon and bound him before their eyes. Now, I said, we we don't have time to read a lot of Scripture, so I'm going to trust that most, if not everybody here, is fairly familiar with this story. I'll try to fill any blanks in that are not. We're going to hit on some high points. What we have in Genesis 42, you can feel, if you listen to the text, the animosity between Jacob and his boys here in the first four or five verses. You can sense it. You can feel it. And by the way, what brings this about? What, what happens is you find out in a moment, Jacob doesn't trust his sons. I heard this preacher the other night talking about it. He said, why would you not think a boy would be safe if he's traveling with ten grown men? Because he didn't trust the ten men. There's distrust. There's a lot of things going on in this home that tell you this was not a home that had peace. By the way, let's think through this this morning. Let's, we want to understand peace from God's perspective. God gives a lot of, of antonyms to peace in the Bible. So, for, in, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 14, one of the opposites of peace is confusion. For God is not, uh, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches. So let's think through. One of the things that helps me understand peace is what's the opposite of peace? Confusion. If I'm confused, I don't have peace. I'm, I, I don't know what's going on. What would be another opposite of peace? Any takers? Fear. Absolutely. Uh, the Bible calls it carefulness in Philippians chapter 4. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which passeth all understanding should keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Fear is the opposite of peace. So confusion, fear. How about conflict? How about strife. These are all opposite of peace. So peace is when there is, is, there is no, when animosity has been resolved. Here's what happens. If, if you think someone has done you wrong, do you treat them differently than if you don't think they've done you wrong? So you have something of great value missing from your house. Your chainsaw comes up missing out of the back of your truck. You got a pretty good idea who did it because you're not, you weren't born last night, but you just can't prove it. And you think, I think my neighbor over there did that. And one day your neighbor comes over and boy, they got a nice stack of firewood on the back of your truck, on the back of their truck. And you think, that rascal using my chainsaw to get his firewood? And then if you're a Christian, you think, I shouldn't think that. I don't know that. Neighbor comes over and says, hey, do you mind if I borrow this or that from you? And all of a sudden, there's animosity in you because you think that neighbor took your chainsaw and you're going to big old smile on your face. No, that's fine. But inside, you're boiling. There's animosity. That's not peace, is it? 
That's different than when you know you and your neighbor have treated each other in an equal and just manner and things are okay. So when there's conflict, when there is fear, when there's confusion, that's those are, let me give you some things in jo- Jacob's home that were preventing peace. We're going to talk about it. The first point this morning is the prevention of peace. If you look here in chapter 42, verse 1, I've mentioned a number of these already. Jacob expresses displeasure with his sons, which means there was friction. Now, that's inevitable. There's going to be friction in a home relationship, in a church relationship, because you have two breathing human beings. There's going to be some friction, but this is different. Jacob says in verse 1, Now when Jacob saw that there was corn in Egypt, so it came to Jacob's attention, we don't have food, Egypt does. It'd be kind of like this. Um, we've run out of grain for the chickens, but there's some down there at the farm store, and we've been out of grain now for six days, and I don't have the ability to go buy some, but all of you do, and nobody's going to get it. It seems to me it was abundantly clear in Jacob's house where they could get food. For, these are grown boys with children of their own. This is We're not talking about 12-year-olds here. These are grown men. And Jacob says this, uh, Now when Jacob saw there was corn in Egypt, Jacob said unto his sons, Why do you look one upon another? Meaning, why are you sitting around staring at each other like you don't know what to do? (laughs) You hear his frustration. I mean, honestly. And the preacher I heard the other night pointed out, and I missed it. He said, you reckon there was anything in these boys that made them reluctant to go to Egypt? Anything at all? Where was Joseph headed last time they saw him? Egypt. And if they went to Egypt, you know what it's going to bring to their memory? You think it's on accident God allowed the corn to be right where Joseph was? He used Joseph to be the provider. God is starting a process in the lives of these boys that God is using to make peace with them. And Joseph is the tool. But may I say this, you'll never have peace with God without having, without having to face truth. What we, want, we have a culture that hates truth because they're terrified of it. If I have to face the truth then I might not like what I see. So it's better for me to live in my Walt Disney pretend world. I'll just pretend that life is a lovely place and I'm part of the lovely equation. Everything turns out good after all. That's That makes you feel warm, but it's just not true. The problem is we sin and we have this thing that God put in us called a conscience. And you can try all you want. You can reprogram your conscience My goodness, you can sear your conscience where it has no feeling. Most people aren't there. But what our nation has done is it has desensitized its conscience so that now things that used to make us feel horrible about ourselves, it's not that bad. Everybody else is doing it too. Well, all it is is we're hiding truth. These men, these men right here for 22 years knew that Egypt held a secret that would expose them for what they really were, not what they pretended to be. We become great pretenders. And I feel like, I believe, our nation has an epidemic, not of COVID-19, but of deceit. We are a very deceitful country. It's true. That doesn't mean every American citizen is a liar. I don't mean that. But by and large, the winds of deception have swept over us so that we pretend that you know, I think the, the, the third world countries look and think, man, Americans are so happy because they have all this stuff. Oh, my, no. I've met people in third world countries that are so much more content than we are. It's true. 
It's true. So we, we, we're putting across this guise. It's false. And a lot of believers in America have become deceitful. There's many people... Let me say something. One of the reasons people get afraid to be confronted with the gospel is because they're afraid it will prove them to be lost. In their conscience, they think, I am probably going to die and go to hell because I am not really a good person. But I don't even know that. In the journals of Mother Teresa is a, an acknowledgement that she had no assurance of where she would spend eternity. If anybody was going to get to heaven on good works, Mother Teresa would make it. She was not a bad lady. Would, would we agree? Not by what we could see. Very benevolent person, very giving person. But her own conscience told her, I am not good enough. And that's true, by the way. And what happens is we meet people every week or every day that in their conscience, they know they have things on their conscience that they have done that their Creator is displeased with. They know they have evil that they've done to other people. And what they've done is pretended, but I've overcome that by being a pretty decent person. And they're terrified of the truth coming out because they know the truth and God knows the truth. But when some peacemaker comes along, it seems rough. You with me? You say, well, why is this family like this? What is the prevention of peace? Well, we find here the displeasure of Jacob with his sons. That's preventing peace. Uh, The distrust that you find in him toward his sons. Look at verse 3 of Genesis 42. And Joseph's ten brethren went down to buy corn in Egypt, but Benjamin, Joseph's brother Jacob, sent not with his brethren, for he said, lest peradventure mischief befall him. Well, why would he, as we said before, why would he think that? Well, because mischief befell Joseph all those years ago. Now, let me remind you, we have enough record in Scripture to know this. 22 years have passed since Joseph's disappearance. He was 17 when he was sold into Egypt. He was 30 when he became what we would call the prime minister, right? That's 13 years. The the seven years of plenty had taken place. That's seven more. That's 20. And then Joseph tells his brethren that the famine had been going on for two years. So it is now 22 years since they sinned and lied to their dad. We're going to get there in just a moment. Had done something to Joseph. They sold him, got money. Uh, It is uh, pointed out 22 years ago. They go, come home. They have Joseph's coat. Do you think Jacob never noticed they had some extra spending money? You think he never noticed that they were able to afford a little more? Joseph's gone and you have money. I can't prove you boys did something, but something doesn't smell right. For 22 years, there had been distrust in this family. Joseph's son Reuben had been immoral with his concubine. That created distrust. Two of his sons had slaughtered a city behind his back that created distrust. The Bible says, because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. And you and I both know at the basis of love is trust. May I say this? What happens that robs us of peace is distrust of other people. I've seen people that never fully plug into a church. Never. They'll never get adopted into a church family because of hurt that happened 25 years ago. They've never let God give them peace. You with me this morning? I've seen, I've seen pastors who never learn to love churches because they've been hurt somewhere in the ministry. And so there's always a, a distance. Look, if you're breathing, you know what I'm talking about. Somebody hurts you and it, it breeds distrust in you. Friend, that's not peace. Because what you think is, who's going to hurt me next? I'm not going to let that happen. You with me? It's what's going on in Jacob's home. There's distrust. There is displeasure from the authority to the, the sons. And these are all grown men. And there's a, an underlying distress, which we would call distress for our outline. Say fear. 
Do you hear Jake, Jacob? And Joseph's ten brethren went down to buy corn in Egypt, but Benjamin, Joseph's brother Jacob, sent not with his brethren, for he said, lest peradventure mischief befall him. He said, I'm going to hold him back. I don't want anything happening to him. What is the driving force in Jacob's life right here? Fear. You know what's driving his policies? Uh, the, again, I'm getting a lot of help from the preacher I heard the other night. He said, when it comes time for them to send back and get more food, Jacob delays the decision. It's not the boys this time. They say, but the guy told us we can't go without Benjamin. Wait a little longer. We don't. People, look, his crops are, I mean, his animals are dying. They need food. Oh, wait a little bit longer. What's the driving force? Fear. Now, I'm going to tell you something this morning. I'm going to park for here just for a minute. Christian, it is a sin for us to get caught up in the spirit of fear that's running our culture right now. It is a sin. If I am going to make my decisions, look, your health is between you and your God. Uh, you need to, I need to watch out for other people's health. We need to be irresponsible. But if you and I are being run by the spirit of fear, oh my, we all might get... I, I hear every day you click on the news for 30 seconds. Everything's bad. You know what? It's bad that it's raining out there. Did you anybody notice it's raining? Oh, not a blessing. It was a minute ago. Cars are wet. But if you're listening to the news, it might not rain for another six years. Are you with me? You know, I was talking to somebody in the store the other day. They said, oh, so hot. So hot. I said, it feels like July around here. I did. I thought, of course it's hot. Of course it's 95 degrees. It's July. It gets hot. My point is, he said, what are you saying, Pastor? There's so many lives this morning are being lived by fear. Meaning, I'm going to make all my decisions because something bad might happen. Something bad might happen. You know what? i tell you what. Here's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going we're to hand out life jackets because before the day's done, we might all get flooded by the Kootenai River. Honestly, should we do that? That's, that seems ridiculous, doesn't it? There are people living their lives that way today. There are people that are disobeying God because they're afraid of what might happen if they obey. Here's Jacob. Here's Jacob saying, you're not going to take Benjamin. Let me say this. Distrust genders fear. 2 Timothy 1, 7. For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love. And with sound mind. Now, you say, how could Jacob have... Before we get too hard on Jacob, by the way, I don't like the guy's character because he's a little too much like me. I'm just being frank with you. I study that guy and everything I don't like him, I, I can find in me. So, well, he shouldn't be afraid. Let me ask you, if you believe 10 of your sons were responsible for destroying one of your sons, would you be afraid of sending your other son? His fear was reasonable, but it was still sinful. Hear what I just said. It was reasonable, but it was still sinful. What had God promised to do with Jacob? He had taken the promise he gave to Abraham and said, I will make of you a great nation. And he handed that to Isaac and, and then on to Jacob. Jacob had a promise that God was going to preserve him and make of him a great nation through those 12 boys. And if he had focused on the promises of God more than the circumstances of life, he might not have been so ruled by fear. I want to repeat what I just said. I need it and you need it. If he'd been more focused on the promises of God than the circumstances of life, he might not have been so ruled by fear. You see, God has made to you and I, how many of you know this? One day, this is rocket science, we're going to die. As a Christian, when I die, one day I'm also going to get a new body. That's a promise. Now, while I want to be as healthy and as vibrant as I can be in this one, 
I know this one's not going to last. It's a house that's going to decay. And there are so many people who all their lifetimes are subject to, to bondage through fear of death. Christian, you and I have no reason to fear death. I understand it's not pleasant. I don't look forward to it. There's going to be a certain level of fear as far as uncertainty, but really there's not. It's a shadow for us. Do I hope that's true? Hope? We know. We're the only people that know the score today. Not this people in this room, people that know God. We're the only people that really know the score. Look at I know what my eternity is going to be. I don't want, look, I want life to be as good as it can be, but the fact of the matter is I'm not living for a better life here, nor are you if you're saved. We're living for eternal things. Joseph got a hold of that. That's why God can entrust him with being a, a prince and having great riches because he didn't love it. He used it. My point is this this morning, as we move on, the prevention of peace in the household of Jacob was there was displeasure uh, amongst themselves with each other. There was distrust and distress. But why were all those things there? Well, because of Genesis 37. We won't take time to read it. But in Genesis 37, 29 through 36, is everything that all this distrust and displeasure built on, a sin had been committed. The ten brethren had sinned against Joseph and against their dad, and then they covered it with a lie. They did something that they knew was evil, but they did it out of what? What was the attitude of the heart that drove them to take Joseph, throw him in a pit, pull him out, strip his coat of many colors off, rip it up, put blood on it, take it home and tell daddy got killed? Well, they didn't tell him. He said it. He said, surely he's been slain by a beast. And they said, yup. <laughs> what was the driving force behind that? The Bible says envy. They envied him. They hated the pleasure. He pleased dad. They didn't because they were bad. They were wicked guys. They were selfish and proud and lustful, wicked guys. Joseph loved God, got visions from God, pleased his dad, and they said, we hate you. So they said, what we're going to do, we have an opportunity to be rid of this guy. You know who they thought was the, the disturber of their household? Who do you think they thought was the disturber of peace? The same people the world thinks are the disturbers of peace today. If you Christians would just get in line, we could all live wickedly together and get along. We could all defy God together, but if you would quit just being obedient to God, the world would be a better place. So what they say is be rid of them already. Stick them in a pit someplace or let them be slaves. Huh? Well, sure, that's what it is. So here we have deceit was what ultimately robbed this family of peace. Don't miss it. A conscience with a lie on it can never be at peace. I believe this, and some of this, I, I, because I'm not God, I don't know the depth of it, but I wonder if sometimes as Christians, instead of cooperating, I'm talking about saved people, instead of cooperating with the Holy Ghost, at some point in time, we have done something in disobedience to our Heavenly Father, and instead of facing it honestly and saying, you know what, whatever He does, He's right. Whatever the consequences are for me, I'm willing to accept that. We just pretend everything's okay. I know somebody today that came to my mind, and they would consider themselves as trying to be, I've heard them say, I'm, I, I try to be a peacemaker, try to be conciliatory. But generally what I've watched, and I love this person, what I've watched them do, though, is let's everyone pretend that everybody is nice to each other all the time, even though we're not. Let's all pretend that we're all good and nice, and we'll all get along. And it, by the way, it has not succeeded. That kind of peacemaking doesn't. Peacemaking cannot be built on deceit. It must be built on truth. So the prevention of peace in the household of Jacob was through deceit, which caused displeasure and distrust and distress. Secondly, we come to the provider of peace. We read about him in Genesis 42, and that's Joseph. 
Joseph is the one that will ultimately bring healing to this family. He's the type of Jesus Christ. He's the one that will ultimately fix what's wrong inside this house. But I want us to focus on how does he do it. If I were Joseph, and I'll just be honest with you, if I were Joseph, based on what my understanding of peacemaking has been, my brothers show up, I realize I'm supposed to forgive them. I'm still really upset at them, but because I'm supposed to, I'll act like I do. Hey, guys. Oh, good to see you. Let bygones be bygones. Would that have made peace? Does Joseph have aught against them? He does. Is it justified? Is Joseph bitter at them? He is not. Not bitter, but he does have aught. They did do him wrong. What does the Bible say if your brother have aught against you or if he's trespassed against you, what are you supposed to do? Pretend it never happened. Go to him. If you're at the altar and you remember your brother has aught against you, meaning you know you did him wrong, you're, you're well aware of that and you remember that, what are you supposed to do? First, go be, what's the word? Reconciled to your brother. Get the thing repaired. But what has happened is, instead of peacemakers, where we're, we become deceivers. The peacemaker in this home is the one that says, I will not deviate from the truth of this matter. I've got to know where my brothers are. See what he does? He has a willingness in his heart to do a very difficult job. Number one, what does Joseph have the power to do? He has the power to take vengeance. He's in a position of authority. He can have them decapitated if he wants. If he says to Pharaoh, these men are spies, I want them dead by 6 p.m., you know what happened to them? They'd have been dead. But because he wasn't bitter, that never even crossed his mind. So there's two extremes he could have taken. He could have taken vengeance on them and taken them out, or he could have pretended that there was nothing wrong with them. And you know what he would have done? What would have happened to them if Joseph acted like they never sinned against him and never made them face what they did? They would have continued in their defiled state till the day they died. And what would that have done to them? Ruined them. Who destroyed them. We find this is what David did with Absalom. Please don't lose me. We will speed up in just a moment. Absalom kills his younger brother, seemingly justified because the younger brother has done harm to his younger sister. And Absalom says, if my dad won't deal with it, I will. Absalom wanted to be a king, and so he takes out his brother Amnon. He gets his servants to do it and do his dirty work for him. Then when David finds out about it, David's upset. So what does Absalom do? Go to his dad and say, Dad, I'm sorry. I should have never done that. I was a fool. I was No, he takes off and hides with Grandpa. King of Geshur was Absalom's grandpa. And he stayed there for four years, I think it was, until Joab could see that David's heart was tender toward Absalom again. And so he says, shall I go get Absalom? And, and Joab comes up with a trick. He gets a woman to go in and act like she's got a problem and tricks, tries to trick David. David sees through it. He says, isn't Joab in this? And Joab says, yeah, I see you want Absalom here. I hate to see you missing your son. Can we bring him back? He brings him back, and what does, what does David do? He acts like Absalom never did anything wrong. He hugs his neck. And you tell me how that turned out. Meaning he gave Absalom the, the forgiveness that goes to a repentant person and the benefits of forgiveness without repentance in Absalom's heart. Absalom never said, I was a rebel. I overstepped my bounds. I was a murderer and killed my brother. I went outside God's laws to do what I did. And I deserve death. I'm falling at your mercy, Dad. Do with me what you will. Is that what he did? No, no, no. You, by David extending an, 
unjustifiable mercy, meaning he gave mercy before there was repentance. He emboldened Absalom in his rebellion, and Absalom turned out being a tyrant. And don't miss me this morning. How many of you think perhaps in giving the gospel to people, we might be doing some of the same things? By saying, you know what? God loves you. He has, he has a heart for you. He died for you. And you don't even have to think about whether or not you've ever offended him. He just wants to be nice to you and love on you, and that's all. Is that true? Does God love sin? Can I ask him? As we read our text earlier about Joseph, why does Joseph have to turn and walk away after speaking roughly to them? To weep. He's not angry at these boys. Joseph has an ultimate goal. He wants to bless them. I can say with the authority of God's word, God's ultimate goal for you is he wants to bless you. But he can't bless you until you're reconciled with what you've done in offense against him. God wants to bless you. But that blessing comes through repentance and reconciliation. And Joseph understood this. He had a willingness to do the hard work of bringing his brothers to repentance. I would say this before. Let me ask him, 22 years. How long do you think it had been since they even thought about this sin? Probably a long time. But when they heard the word Egypt, all of a sudden it reminds them, ah, we got some skeletons buried in Egypt. Yikes. Don't want to think about that. So then they have to go to Egypt and they meet this man. Of course, they don't recognize him. He looks Egyptian, but he recognizes them. And Joseph intentionally deals with them in such a way to make them think about what they did 22 years ago. Because he wants to take vengeance or because he wants them to turn from it. He wants to change their heart from their sin toward God. And so he intentionally makes them face what they had done wrong. He had a willingness to confront them with their sin. He had a willingness to make them face by saying, you're spies. You're coming here to spy. Then he puts them in prison for how many days? Three days. Then he says, you know what? Get your dad to send your younger brother with you. And you know what they say? That ain't going to happen. What's he causing them to think about? what they had done with their younger brother. Then he puts money in their sacks. He's causing them to think about their covetousness and their envy. He is forcing them to face what they truly and really are. May I say this? The number one, number one reason people are leaving faithful Bible-preaching churches today is over this issue. If you're going to sit under Bible preaching, it is going to force you to face what you really are, not what you and I pretend to be. You know what they wanted to do? Mash them. When Joseph said, you're come to spy, you, your, your intentions are no good, mash you something. Is there any reason, please don't lose me yet this morning, is there any reason people in our life shouldn't trust us? If everybody in this room knew everything about you, would they trust you as much as they do right now? If they knew everything you'd ever thought, everything you'd ever done in your personal private life, do you think they'd trust you as much as they would with what they see in the exterior? So when someone exercises distrust in us, why does it offend us so much? Hmm? Because often we have projected something different. And look, if you're saved and forgiven and God's changed you, I understand he changes your testimony. But I'm also saying this. These men get offended. They say, we're true men. We're not spies. Well, they weren't. Did, jo- did Joseph know they weren't spies? Of course he did. But were they true men? You know what? Who's the first person they defend when Joseph confronts them with being spies? They defend themselves. Why Why would you say that? I cannot believe you would think we're spies. Really? Really? Yeah, why would he not think it? If he knows anything about you, 
He's willing to go through the discomfort of causing them to have to take a hard look at who they are. And may I say this, the peacemaker is not the person that's willing to make everyone like us, but the person that says, you know what, none of us can get what we need until we will receive truth. And the peacemaker is more devoted to truth than they are to their own reputation. How many of you know that by the time these boys left this room, Joseph was thought to be a, a tyrannical despot? Was he? Joseph was okay with them thinking he was evil when he was really good for a moment. He was okay with them thinking that he is a rough-speaking, mean-spirited king who wants to take off their heads when really he wants to help them. May I say this? If God's going to help you, he's going to put somebody in your life that's going to seem rough to you, someone that at times is going to make you face some things. You're going to say, man, this God is mean. No, he wants to help you. But God cannot help us outside the realm of truth. It's just all there is to it. And so then Joseph is willing to be loyal to the truth in order ultimately. He's willing to be disliked for a moment in order to be able to bless them perpetually. Joseph knew it was in the power of his hand to save the lives of his family. But if he gave them benefits when they were still defending their sin, it would only embolden them in their sin. The prosperity of fools destroys them. So Jacob, Joseph knew if I give them benefits, well, it's just like this. You got a youngster that's running around using their vehicle to go do vile things and evil things at night in their car, and you buy him a new car. You know what you just told him? I'm good with this. Go have at it. And Joseph knew he had enough wisdom to know that wisdom that is from above is first what? Pure, then peaceable. Purity means it's not admixed with deceit. It's 100% true. So he had a willingness to confront them with the truth. He had wisdom enough to know how to do it. He was not, his heart was not motivated by revenge. His heart was motivated by love. And he was willing to let them think evil of him for a time in order to help them. And then his work, if you study the life of Joseph, Joseph went to great lengths to bring these men to repentance. Put money back in their bags, meaning... If I'm going to bless you, I'm not going to do it because you earned it. I'm going to bless you because I'm gracious. I'm going to be kind to you. He goes to the work of putting them in prison, taking them out, sending them home, requiring them to come back. You know what? It would have been a lot easier for Joseph to never let them know who he was. Been a lot easier for Joseph to say, you know what? I can do two things. I can do two things. I can take care of my brothers and my dad, make sure they don't die, make sure Benjamin doesn't die, and keep being king and they'll never know who I was. I can have a good conscience and say they're alive, good enough for me. Send them back, tell them, come back in a few months and do it again and never confront them with anything. There are those days who say, I don't believe in a confrontational gospel. Why not? The gospel will confront the sinner. Darkness doesn't like light. And if we're going to help people, if we're going to be a true peacemaker, we have to put the truth in front of them so they can see themselves clearly. And whether it is someone getting saved or someone who's out of God's will, either way. And his wisdom was he knew how to paint a clear picture because immediately after Joseph says, you're spies... What's the first thing comes back to their mind? We are very guilty of our brother's blood. Did they know? What made them think of that? The wisdom of Joseph to put their attention on their sin to see, are you really repentant over what you did? I want to bless you. And the key to God's blessing is repentance. And so he's willing to confront them, willing to be uncomfortable himself. He's willing to be put to the discomfort and the sorrow of having to deal with this issue. He is taking the entire burden of their rescue upon himself. 
He's got the wisdom to do it, and he is willing to do the work of bringing them to a place of acknowledging the truth that they were worthy of death, but they could receive grace. James chapter 3. I want to read these verses quickly, and we'll get to our final point and wrap up. James chapter 3, verses 14 through 18. A lot of people would say, oh, you're talking about tough love. Well, you want to call it that. But the fact of the matter is, God's love for us is often missed because this is the way God works. It's why peacemakers are called the children of God. By the way, did, did it cost Joseph anything to make peace with his brethren? We'll see that in a minute. It, the entire cost of it lay on him. All it cost them was being willing to come to him on his terms. That's all. The provider, though, we see of peace is Joseph. He has the willingness to do the work, the wisdom, and he does the work of reconciliation by bringing the truth ever before them, making them face the truth of what they've done in a truthful way. James chapter 3, verse 14, But if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but it's earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there's confusion and every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without, without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. Joseph's ultimate goal is, I want my brothers and I to be in agreement and fellowship with each other so that I can take the resources that are in my hands and impart it to them. And so he's willing to confront them. He has the wisdom to do so, and he goes to the work of doing it. The procurement of peace. Was peace made between Joseph and his brethren? It was. By the time you come to Genesis 50, you find that Joseph has extended the forgiveness that he wants to give them. He's ready to forgive them. They just weren't quite ready to receive it. You know what I believe they would have thought? They thought he is trying to kill us. And I'll say this again. And I'm so impressed to say this in this message. When God begins to deal with you about your salvation, you will feel like he is preparing to cast you into hell at that moment. He's not doing that because he wants to. He's doing that because he wants to save you from it. But you'll never get saved from hell until you're convinced you're going there. Amen? It's truth. Until you're convinced you deserve it, you'll never ask to be saved from it. Whether you thought about... Until you're convinced that God's wrath is worth... You're worthy of that. And if today, as in our dealings with one another even, in the family of God, I want to give you one final illustration to illustrate just generally the principle of peacemaking. You take a married couple. How many of you know this? That every so often, if a married couple doesn't learn to work with God, something reveals what's already under the surface. They both have little animosities with each other. And because they know they're supposed to get along, they just tuck it away and act like it never happened. Tuck it away and act like it never happened. So finally, a pattern gets formed in their mind. You know what? When I do this, she always says that. And it irritates me. She knows it irritates me, but she always does that. Uh, when I do this, she always says that. And so, but I want to be a good husband, so I won't bring it up, and I'll pretend like it doesn't bother me. And then one day, they get under financial stress, and he says, you always, and he gives his list of grievances in a moment of time. She does. Noah, you always. You know what that is? That is pretending to be at peace for weeks and months and years when there's not. It would be better if the two people would be honest and say, you know, you said that, I don't agree with that. One of the things we've not learned to do as human beings is work out problems. And that's because we're not listening to the Holy Spirit of God. 
and that takes honesty and transparency. And here's Joseph, and here's where he's at. He has the power to bless his brethren. He has the power to curse them. He chooses, I'm going to bless them. But he takes on a he takes on such an odd scenario because they don't know him. He he, he seems to them as an enemy, so that they can confront their sin and own up to it. Here's what happened: Joseph completely footed the bill for their restoration. To him, their restoration to each other. What happened is, as long as this sin is under the surface, undealt with, unconfessed, unforgiven, there's no peace. As long as that sin is unconfessed and unforgiven, there's no peace. And he says, I want their peace. I want our family's peace. And the only way for that to happen is there has to be things brought to the light so that forgiveness can be extended. By the way, forgiveness is never extended from God without repentance. Repentance is me agreeing with God 100%, taking God's side against myself because I believe him. Amen? Read your Bible. There's, Jesus said, if your brother trespasses against it, go ahead and tell him. If he repent, forgive him. We're to forgive ahead of time, be ready to give. Joseph said, I will put the bill. Every time they tried to pay Joseph for the food, what did he do? Genesis chapter 42, 25, he put the money back in their bag. Genesis 41, 45, 44, uh, 45 verses 4 through 8, he puts the money back in their bag. What would he receive as payment for the blessing he was giving them? Nothing. Because peace requires not only truth, it requires grace. Grace is I'm going to give something that is not deserved. Joseph was going to, he wanted to get to the point where he could treat them like it never happened. But the only way that happens is forgiveness. And the only way forgiveness is found is when there's repentance. And the only way there's repentance is when there's revelation. Listen closely. You may have some sins on your conscience, even as saved people. You may have sins on your conscience, disobediences to God. And you say, you know what? I just want to move on with life. Your, your Savior will not let you do that. He wants there to be peace in your heart and you can't have peace until your guilt is clear. And you can't have that cleared until you've been forgiven by Him. That's what David did with Nathan. Uh, Nathan with David. God says, you know what? David has sinned. So He sent Nathan to reveal what David had done. And David can either say, God, you're right, or I was justified. I had my reasons. There cannot be reconciliation without repentance and forgiveness. And today, what happens is we just want, we want the benefit. We, here's what forgiveness is. The offended person acts like it never happened. But there are some conditions that have to be met ahead of time. How many want God to treat you as if you never sinned? What's the Bible word for that? Justification. Justified means to be treated by God as if I've never sinned against Him. But you must meet His conditions to acknowledge I deserve what Jesus took on the cross because of my wickedness. I deserve what He took. And I would desire for you to forgive me. But I understand if you forgive me, me, it's not because I deserve it, but because you decide to be good. The brothers of Joseph had to accept the grace of Joseph. Joseph kept putting their money back and they would try to give it back and he would say, nope, I will not take your, your money. I don't want your wages. I simply want to impart to you grace. And by the way, if we're going to be peacemakers, we've got to do the same thing. If we say, well, I would forgive so-and-so, I would be kind to so-and-so, don't misunderstand me. Repentance is required before there can be forgiveness. But when there is repentance, you know what we're supposed to do? We're supposed to forgive. And by the way, that's God's way. That's what He did with us. And so the idea would be this. There had to be revelation. 
The thing had to be brought to light. It had to be dealt with honestly and truly. They had to face what they had done to their brother. The longer they go, the more they say, we were very, we're guilty of our brother's blood. We were wrong. And when you finally get down to Genesis, chapter 50, verses 15 through 21, you find them begging Joseph's forgiveness after Jacob is dead. But the key text is about Judah. As you read through, Judah comes to a point where he says, you know what? I will take responsibility for the wrongs I've done. And if I have to die, so be it. I'm not going to let what happened to Joseph happen to Benjamin. You know what? He has the same view as his dad does. He's finally got an agreement with God, if you would. The peacemaker today, and I guess this is the heart of the entire message, the peacemaker today is not the deceitful person who acts like they've never offended God, the deceitful person who acts like we've never offended others. It's not the deceitful person that says, well, I've done some of the same things, so let's all just pretend we're good when we're not. That's what the ten brethren did all along. The peacemaker is the Joseph who says, you know what? I'm going to make you face what you did to bring you to a point of turning your own heart against yourself. When was the last time you turned against yourself as hardly as you have someone else? When was the last time you said, you know what? I I don't deserve anything from God. If they had known that was Joseph on the throne the whole time, do you think it would have shocked them that he's feeding them food? And he's going to send, you know, he's making sure they're protected and safe and not taking their heads off? Let's just ponder this as we close. Why today does God not lob the head off of the United States of America? Why doesn't he? I believe he's given us one last little breath of air and an opportunity, at least for some, to repent and say, we are not worthy to be a nation. We deserve to be wiped off. You said, Pastor, it's the best nation on the planet Earth. What does that say about planet Earth? Eh? It doesn't say how good we are. It says how evil man is and how merciful God is to make us face our sins. You know what? I, I hate tragedy, but if it takes some drought and some fires and some pandemics to wake us up and remind us who's actually in control of this thing and to say he has the power to cut our... Do, do any of us realize how swiftly our lives can change? God has the power to change it all right now. Why is he not? Because he's not trying to destroy us. God's not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. God, we're the ones that have been wrong. By the time, and again, we don't have time to read it, Judah is representative of the changed attitude in the majority of those boys. I don't think Reuben ever really repented, to be honest with you. But the rest of them came came to a place where they said, you know what? All we can do is fall on the mercy of that man in charge. And when you read about Judah, he goes before Joseph and he's very honest. And he says, you know, I told my dad that I wouldn't let any harm come to my little brother Benjamin. So I'm asking you, you take him out of prison. You punish me for his wrongdoing, stealing your silver cup. You know where Judah's heart's at? He's humble and repentant. He's not saying, I don't deserve this. Why am I being treated this way? May I say this? You say, preacher, I want a good, I want a good gauge of how I'm doing spiritually. How defensive am I of myself will tell me how I'm doing spiritually. If I'm defensive of me and how I ought to be treated, I need a peacemaker to come into my life and say, you know what, you're out of fellowship with God. Either you're not saved or you're a disobedient child. Because the person in fellowship with God, this goes all the way back to our first beatitude. Blessed are the what? The meek. Those who say, I'm in need. Here's Joseph, a peacemaker 
who is willing to take the responsibility and the burden and the cost on himself to bring his brothers to a point where he is actually able to bless them. You know what? When we're winning souls to Christ, we'll say this in closing. We've got to have the wisdom from God, be willing to do the work and pay the cost to get people to the point of seeing you have offended God and he has the power and the ability to pour his wrath on you, but he wants to forgive you if you'll acknowledge that you need forgiveness. If you'll acknowledge you deserve what's coming your way. The fact of the matter is, blessed are the peacemakers. This is how God deals with us. He's willing to confront us with our sin. He is willing to make us see what we really are. He's willing to take his word, put it in a mirror in front of us, and help us to say, you know what? You're not worthy of trust. You are a sinner. That he might bring us to the point and say, yes, I am. And I don't deserve your kindness, but I sure am willing to accept it. How did peace get made between Joseph and his brethren? Joseph offered forgiveness, and they were willing to acknowledge they need it and receive it. He was willing to impart to them blessings, and they received it. This morning, as we look at Joseph, the peacemaker, I said at the beginning, it's a little bit difficult message to preach because there's so many different ways it applies. You may be here this morning, and you may have one of those they, they call skeletons in your closet. Maybe the Spirit of God has been bringing through circumstances in your life a reminder of some things that show you how bad you really are. How much you do not deserve God's favor and blessing. And you have a tendency to say, I want as far away from that as I can be. I don't want to see myself that way. God's dealing with you that you might have peace. He's not trying. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. But you'll never have peace until you've repented and you've been reconciled and and your conscience are sure that God has put away your sin. You may be here today and say, I'm not saved. I've sinned against God, but I'm not sure that I have his forgiveness. Maybe you look at yourself and God's bringing some things to your memory today and say, you know what? I've got some things I know I've done, but I've never addressed those with God. I don't believe God will leave you alone until you have. Until you face the truth about who you are and realize that the only way you'll have his blessings on your life is through his goodness. He paid the entire cost. Jesus Christ paid the cost. Christian, this morning we may have some things that broken our fellowship with God and we've thought, you know, the best thing to do is let's just pretend it never happened. I believe with all my heart, God will never be sure your sin will find you out. Why? Because God's trying to destroy you or because God's trying to make peace? There are people that have been carrying guilt and burdens for 20 and 30 and 40 years and God will intervene and send a peacemaker to say, this is the root problem. You've got this back here on your conscience and it's never been repented of, never been reconciled. When Jesus spoke to seven churches of Asia Minor, he said, this is, this is what I have for you and this is against you. Here's what I'm calling you to repent. Agree with me that my assessment of you is correct. As you're sitting here this morning, we're about to stand, heads bowed and eyes closed. Is the Holy Spirit of God bringing, if you're, I'm going to speak to Christians first, bringing something to your mind that you have never addressed with your Heavenly Father? Something you say, I know I'm saved. I've come to the point of trust in Christ. I know he saved me. But I've been living my life as though as though everything's fine, but I've never honestly addressed my sins as a child of God. God says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. Uh, he, that confesseth, he that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh him shall have mercy. What are the conditions of mercy? Confession and forsaking. Maybe God is bringing a sin to your conscience today because he wants you to turn your back on it. So you know what? I'm forsaking that thing. I'm going to be honest with God and turn my back on it. Maybe God's brought some things to your mind as a Christian today. You know what the thing is not to do? Not to leave here and say, well, I don't think I'm that... No, not defending. 
get peace with God. You may be here this morning and say, you know, if I died and met God today, he knows what I am and I'm in trouble. You have no assurance that you're saved. Don't leave here without making peace with God. Let somebody help you. Amen? Get that matter settled. Agree with God about your sinful state. Agree with God about Jesus Christ. Let him save you. He's willing, but you've got to meet his terms. Mm-hmm.